for your orderliness. <laughs> I'm used to, when I'm late, walk into a room in chaos, talking and throwing things and wrestling. and That's the joy group that I... <laughs> okay. No, I'm thinking of catechism. Let's open with prayer. Lord of the Church, who has given us your holy word and therein your holy promises, help us to read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest your sweet word that we might be nourished unto eternal life. For the sake of and in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Okay, I, uh, Bruzek and I had a debate. At first, we were going to go with my talking to you about altars. Then Bruzek thought it over and he said, you know, I don't think that's going to work. Just take him through grain offering and peace offering. And then I was mindful of the fact that we probably wouldn't begin meeting to about now. And let's face it, Bruzek's out of town. <laughs> so I decided, I decided I'm going to talk to you about two things. First, I am going to talk about altars and then I'm going to talk about ritual. And I'll let him pick up with grain offering and peace offering next Sunday. Uh, this will be just a little s surprise for him when he comes back. <laughs> but I, I hated to... Pardon? I know it is. And <laughs> at my age, few people can hurt me. <laughs> okay. Uh, well, let's do remember it's on tape and not be too uh, levitous here. Um, I was afraid that we would try 15 minutes for peace offering, 15 minutes for grain offering, and then we've got to be on our way. So this is this, uh, when we have uh, Eucharist at uh, uh, 9 o'clock. This is just always one of the disadvantages of it, and so we live with it. It'll just help us decide if we build a new church how, many seating, how much seating capacity it should have. Um, talking to you about altars, it's perhaps some of you come out of traditions, I don't want to do a show of hands, but come out of traditions where there, is, there are not altars. What is the significance of that, first of all? Do you, do you understand that? Because it has a historical launching point. I see a hand, please. I always thought it was because um, they believed that the final sacrifice had been made and that altars were for sacrificing and because Christ was the once and for all that we didn't need an altar anymore. Precisely. Uh, in other words, you don't need to have an altar. The historical thrust of that it probably includes that kind of thinking, but if you look at the history of the Reformation and the three strains of Christianity that came off of that, Lutheran, uh, which, which really was a term of derision that Luther's antagonists used with him because it means little Luthers, and he says, oh, God forbid they should name a church after me. If we must have a name for what we're doing, what we're doing, it should be called the Catholic Evangelical Church. Now, 
When Catholic has a small c, it's an adjective. When it has a capital C, it's a noun. And you're used to the capital C. So whenever I talk to uh, uh, friends and people in what you might say, the Catholic Church, I always say Roman Catholic, because that identifies their Catholicism. Luther wanted the Catholicism of the confessing movement to reflect the gospel, evangelical. Now that, that whole thing has got changed a lot, because nowadays when you, when you say something is evangelical, there is a whole different concept that comes up in your mind. It is uh, it is very representative of one of those three strains that come out of the Reformation. And, uh, okay, so one was Lutheran, one was Calvin, and, and Calvin had a problem with some of the doctrines, like Luther, that came out of the Reformation, uh, out of uh, the Roman Catholic Church, but they, they were focused entirely different than uh, they were for Luther. He was concerned about the sovereignty of God, and he was trying to answer the question why some people are saved and some people aren't. And, it, it finally, and, and he was concerned, like in the uh, sacrament of the Eucharist, that uh, uh, if Christ had ascended into heaven, he couldn't be present on the altar. So uh, he determined that by faith we ascend into heaven and there partake of Christ. And then there was the still more uh, radical in going off in another direction, uh, Reformation thinking of the Anabaptists who felt you needed to start the church over. And so many things in Roman Catholicism had uh, uh, grated them and uh, become problematic for them. One, the sacrifice of the Mass. Are you uh, familiar with that term? The sacrifice of the Mass. Now, to in all these things, you've got to look at it through Calvin's eyes or through Anabaptist's eyes or through Roman Catholic eyes. Uh, in the Roman Catholic Church, articles of faith can be determined by the scriptures, by the decrees of pope, by the decrees of councils, and tradition. And somewhere in the milieu of all four of those, the uh, teaching rose up of re-sacrificing uh, Christ, although I think a Roman theologian would want to sharpen a pencil more on that and say, no, that's not quite right. But at least it, it's called the sacrifice of the mass. mass. And, and they speak of it as a representation of Christ's crucifixion. Now, that's what the Anabaptists and the Calvinists reacted so strongly to. And they said, you don't need to have an altar because Christ's sacrifice is complete. True. Luther said, however, the altar is one of those marvelous, marvelous simple, uh, symbols for the gospel, for the crucifixion of Christ. Because when we see that altar and come into its presence, the promise of Christ that he would be wherever two or three are gathered together in his name is magnified. And that altar directs us to centering on the evangel. Christ died for our sins while we were yet sinners, says in Romans chapter 5, I think. So, because Luther felt that the church 
of the West, and I say that because the Church of the East, what we now call Greek Orthodox, Serbian Orthodox, Russian Orthodox, uh, the Church of the East represented uh, a facet of Christianity. The Church of the West was the Roman Catholic Church. Roman because it was uh, headquartered in Rome, and the Bishop of Rome was the Pope. So it was the Roman Catholic Church, the Roman Rite. And he said, uh, there's nothing wrong with altars, it's just that you've got to put uh, the, uh, the gospel as the explanation of the altar. It's where Christ uh, was sacrificed for our sins. So he saw that the church which had existed in the West for 1,500 years was a witness of the Holy Spirit, and you couldn't just vitiate that. He did not want to start the church over. He wanted to reform the church and reestablish the gospel as the only source for doctrine and faith. Not the decrees of councils uh, or bishops or traditions. It, and he said, traditions need not be everywhere the same, but that that was honored. And uh, I read from uh, a great theologian who taught, has, has done a lot of teaching to me in the riddle of Roman Catholicism. He picks up this uh, name that Luther preferred, the Catholic Evangelical Church, and he says, here's the way you, you make it plain to people. The Lutheran Church has a Catholic identity, small c, because it, it wants to reaffirm the witness of the Holy Spirit in 1,500 years of the church's life. And it's evangelical, uh, so we have a, a Catholic identity, we have an evangelical principle, and that means the, the, uh, when we go to the Bible, we begin teaching it and reading it and, and uh, uh, probing into it at the point of the gospel. Uh, whereas Calvin begins with the sovereignty of God. I'm not, I'm not sure I can speak for the Anabaptists what, what they would say. Uh, probably that you must have a personal conversion that you are conscious of. And we, we, our, our queasiness with that is we think unwittingly it becomes something, my conversion becomes something I initiate. And uh, we think that the scriptures, when it talks about justification by grace through faith, says, no, God is the initiator. Well, at any rate, that's just a little historical context for why when you walk into a Presbyterian church, and they're, they're a good example of, of Calvin's theology, what do you see at the front of the church? A table. A table. What is always engraved in wood on the table? In remembrance of me. In remembrance of me. Because that right there speaks the theology of their sacrament. And for Presbyterians to do that, they're being authentic to what they teach and and uh, uh, preach to people. Uh, what is behind the altar? Okay, we don't have a lot of time. Behind the table, sometimes a cross. Sometimes a cross? Sometimes. And usually a pulpit? Not? Because the preaching of the word is uh, supreme in what goes on in that service. And when they have communion, which is not an every Lord's Day communion, um, in contrast to the early Christian church who celebrated Eucharist on every Lord's Day, they, uh, they preach and they don't have the memorial communion. 
Now, it, I, this is not offered in a pejorative way. It's just saying they do that for a reason. <coughs> and the reasons have to do with their theology. If you go into an Anabaptist church, <coughs> the Anna before Baptist is the uh, privative A in Greek, it's called. It, it's the, it makes opposite what the word says. So a theist is someone who believes in God. An atheist is someone who doesn't believe in God. A, uh, in a sense, you could say a Baptist would believe certainly in baptism, but the privative A, and, and it's a, 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 the, the whole spelling thing, I'm trying to, the rules of orthography, is that what I want to think of? Say that you have to use the A-N-A in, in the case of, of certain words. Anabaptists do not believe in baptism in a certain way. And that strain of Reformation thought reacted much more, and, and that's not true of Calvinists, by the way, uh, reacted much more strongly to everything in the Roman church as having to be started over. And, and it wasn't like it was without some kind of, uh, you know, uh, provocation. Uh, I, I think what probably could have been happening is, is what I think sometimes happens in churches now where uh, pastoral care is not diligent around baptism. There's a kind of assembly line baptism. People who have not fulfilled their own baptism for uh, 20 years have a baby and they call up the reverend. Reverend, we'd, it'd be a very convenient thing for us to have a baptism. We really don't want to come to have it done in church because a lot of the people in our family who will be at the baptism don't believe in church. Could we have it on um, a Saturday maybe? Uh, preferably about noon because we're planning a brunch, uh, so and so. And I think we need to give more pastoral care from that. And I think that was the kind of thing uh, the Anabaptists were concerned about, assembly line baptism. And the sacrifice of the mass was absolutely abhorrent to them. And imploring reason rather than the principle of the gospel and the promise of Christ, because the only reason baptism has power and the Eucharist has power is because Christ promised it. They went in the opposite direction. Everything was symbolic. In fact, they didn't even use the word sacrament. They used the word ordinance. And ordinance means the same thing there as it does at City Hall. It is something to be obeyed because it was commanded by God. So you will not find any sign of an altar when you go into a Baptist church. And I think I'm right on that. Ed, tell me if I'm wrong, but that probably is true. What will you find? Uh, well, there seems to be a dialogue between you and me, Gigi. <laughs> go ahead. My clock has been 1044 for quite a while. Is that right? 1044? It's amazing how all of you have watches. Okay, 1044. Gigi, uh, go ahead. I was going to say a big um, dunking tub for baptizing. Okay, although usually that's behind a curtain, yeah. uh, a large, uh, they, they, I don't know, they've, they've changed materials because we now have uh, acrylic, and so they'll, they'll have that. But you should be behind a curtain. What's visible to you, Judy, is what? Oh, okay. I think there's a pulpit. There's a what? Pulpit or lectern. Yeah, a pulpit or a lectern. Uh, if you watch any, uh, I, I try to watch quite a bit of the uh, religious shows on TV. 
Uh, the more popular material now is Lucite, uh, clear. Well, I, I'm really not making fun. That, uh, just look at it, it is. And uh, um, plastic plants. Because it's all, well, it has to do with symbols and decoration. It does. It's a, they don't mean it to be sacramental. They, they eschew that. So there's not an altar there for a reason, a theological reason, with historical context. And a Baptist is being authentic and true to their, their whole approach to the Christian faith. Only that which leads to personal conversion is uh, required in the church. Now what amazes me, and this is just a little insight of mine, it's, uh, I really didn't get it from anybody, uh, but I'm not publishing it just in case someone else thought of it before I did. The churches that have altar calls have no altars. <laughs> is that not true? Because it's rather the action of coming down, making some kind of physical outward commitment to kneel in prayer, to have uh, elders or whatever, whoever does that in, in those traditions, pray over them and pray that uh, they would, they would uh, come to faith and make the leap for Christ and, and become a Christian or to strengthen them through a rough time in their life. But you see, properly, they, they need a different name than altar call. But that, as they see theology, that's why they don't have an altar and they have altar calls. Um, so I, you, you need to understand the altar from that standpoint. Altars, and when I talk about medieval times, that, that's, that's about as far back as our documents go, but we, we don't know that they didn't do this earlier. It's just that the great architecture often originates out of the 6th, 7th, 8th century. And in those magnificent things that we pay good money to go over and see, because we don't have anything like that, uh, in, in those, uh, many of them cathedrals, many of them were just churches in connection with monastic orders, um, those churches built the altar first and then they built the church around it because the sacrifice made by our Lord Jesus Christ was to be central to an understanding of why we come to church to worship him who died for us that we might be saved and um, to receive the gifts he has to give. Well, that's putting medieval life and theology in its best possible terms. Uh, there's a host of things, the illiteracy of the laity, the superstition of the clergy, and again, uh, traditions, decrees of popes and councils, where things began to evolve and change. But uh, the altar was, was never seen as an option. Um, in fact, lecterns were, were not in churches like that. The lessons were read from the horns of the altar. And that takes us back. This is the epistle horn, that's the gospel horn. And that takes us back to Old Testament uh, uh, typology with, with understanding terminology about a, uh, an altar. If you were in some kind of uh, mess and you were fleeing for refuge, you would flee to a horn of the altar and grasp it. And, and there uh, no one could could harm you. Uh, 
So that, uh, now, in, in the Old Testament, um, altars were erected for a variety of purposes. Uh, when they crossed the Jordan and into the Promised Land, they erected an altar. And, and those were always a pile of stones taken from around where they were. But it was honest material. And they would offer uh, uh, probably a sacrifice of an animal uh, to show that it is only through God's great love and giving that they can stand before him. Uh, Abraham, I believe, uh, in a juncture where he uh, uh, went where God had led him, erects an altar and sacrifices to the Lord and gives praise. Um, I believe Jacob erected an altar at Bethel where the, the angels were descending and ascending the stairs. So that was, that was something, it was kind of a heap of stones and it was left there as a memorial of what God had done. And then comes the building of the temple under uh, Solomon. And by this time, because of things like Leviticus, there was careful ritual that had been developed. And I want to ask you about that. You aren't very deep into Leviticus yet. But how has that struck you? And this will give me a chance to talk a little bit of, about ritual. How has that, you know, how, how have you reacted to uh, the, the uh, precision? Uh, well, you get to the vestments and the movement and placement of the priests. How, how has that struck you? How do you explain that we don't do that today? Apparently, it hasn't been on your mind a great deal. <laughs> but I guess what I'm thinking of in my experience, raised in rural Nebraska, first parish in rural Iowa, people are, of our tradition, very suspicious of, of that kind of thing. And I would think that would be true, maybe in Calvin's theology and in Anabaptist theology. And, and many of our Lutheran fathers and mothers uh, immigrated to the United States at a time when a movement called pietism shaped the church in Europe. They came out of the Thirty Years' War. Uh, I've asked catechumens, how long was the Thirty Years' War? And it, it, they aren't paying attention. And <laughs> it was from 1618 to 1648, and it was devastating. Not unlike the Irish-Protestant-Roman-Catholic Protest clash. Um, reformers, uh, uh, being killed by the representatives of the Pope, uh, reformers killing the representatives of the Pope. It was a time of chaos. So that there was a whole generation that came out of the Thirty Years' War that had not been instructed uh, in the faith. And so a heavy emphasis was placed on instruction. And then uh, what, what the goal was is that they could say it back. Because they couldn't read, they had to, they had to memorize it and be able to say it back. And uh, th this is an unusual where it, I think, I hope I said that in the sermon today, where the secular starts to have a lot of influence on the church. And it was felt by the pietists that people were just rote, re-saying what their faith was, and it wasn't a matter of the heart. And so they began to emphasize, they talked about deeds, not creeds. And when they came over to the United States, uh, and this was uh, extant yet when I was raised in northeastern Nebraska. Uh, my dad was a pastor. We would have communion six times a year. And I, I never questioned that. I never wondered. 
I, I uh, go through uh, preparation to become a pastor, and I start reading all these things about Lutheranism that even my dad hadn't told me uh, in, under the prayer section in the catechism. When you get up in the morning, make the sign of the Holy Cross and say, in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and then uh, say the creed, the Ten Commandments, and the Lord's Prayer, and then you may also say this little prayer, and it's Luther's morning prayer. Um, I'd never seen that before. And why, do, why would Luther be suggesting that you make the sign of the cross when you get up in the morning? Remember your baptism. Sign of your baptism. That's right. That's, you were baptized into the name of the Father, into the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Receive the sign of the Holy Cross both upon the forehead and upon the heart as a sign that you have been redeemed by Christ the crucified. And it, it was no more than that. Now, when we played Guardian Angels High School in basketball, these guys would always step up to the free throw line, make the sign of the cross, and we were always, we Lutherans were praying that they would miss the free throw. <laughs> Frequently they made it, and then we were stuck because uh, we wouldn't resort to that sort of help. We would rather play poorly, but honestly, and lose. But I guess what I'm saying is our church has had a lot of... Uh, movement and you know, this way and then this way and it's really been since the 30s that there was very small movement about trying to restore sacramental theology to be more prominent in Lutheran churches a greater study of the confessions and a greater study and emphasis on the sacraments and their at least weekly accessibility so, um, I, wanna, I want to get over to ritual uh, because a lot of our backgrounds, in Lutheranism at least, and then if you come from Anabaptist background or Calvin background, and, and you have Lutherans feeling kind of the same about ritual, ritual is going to be kind of squashed. Why? Because people think ritual is what? Law. Please. Law and? Roman Catholic and? Dead. What did I do in here? Dead. Dead. Empty, uh, vain repetitions. That really is. Now, maybe you don't hold that, but that's the way a lot of people will, will view ritual. I would counter that that is a misconception and a, and a wrong definition of ritual. Instead of ritual being vain repetitions, empty, dead, um, and when we start pushing uh, uh, far enough, ritual is not confined to the Roman Catholic Church or the Greek Orthodox Church. Um, it, ritual should not be defined as the repetition of meaningless things uh, that, are, that are really empty. Ritual is the redoing, the repeating of those things that have the deepest and most profound meaning. That's what ritual is. Now, can you take ritual and make it, you know, of, of no, no uh, worth and no meaning? Of course you can. And you can do that with a marriage. You start out a uh, married life that when you go to work, you give your wife a, let's say, an extended kiss goodbye. And then you're married 15 years and she's handing you a piece of toast as you run out the door. Well, that, 
uh, you know, that probably they need to stop. He needs to make his own toast. He needs to, to be able to learn how to kiss her again and make it worthwhile. Um, but I, I guess what I'm saying, the Lord's Prayer, saying Lord's Prayer. Some people think that uh, I, my theology is if you never prayed anything but the Lord's Prayer, you'd have an adequate prayer life. And people have taken me on for that, for having vain repetitions. That's not it at all. But can you make it that? Of course. Can you make it a vain repetition to say, oh, Father God, we just want to thank you. Yes, you can. There's, there's all kinds of formula for articulation that, that can become meaningless. But uh, we never said that you should come to church uh, and, and not give of yourself and not do a little work at it. Um, Jesus died to take away your sins, not your minds, you see. And when you come, you, uh, you preach the sermon to yourself uh, sermon's not very good today, but I remember that gospel reading. Uh, I don't remember the gospel reading or the sermon, but I do remember when the pastor said, take, eat the body of Christ for your forgiveness. Take, drink the blood of Christ for your forgiveness. And so, the ritual of the New Testament church borrowed heavily from the ritual of the Old Testament church but did not just repeat it. It had to be sifted now through Christ. So what remains of the ritual of the uh, synagogue? And by the way, I was uh, in with you last Sunday. It's uh, the only time I've gotten to hear Pastor Bruzik on this, where someone talked about um, why do Jews not sacrifice today? Well, he said, because there's no place to sacrifice. And, and that is true. An added thing is that... Uh, Many strata of Jews do not believe that a Messiah will come. They've given up on that. And so they, they, even though they call themselves Temple Beth Shalom, they're a synagogue. Uh, so they're, they're, in that sense, there's no place to uh, crucify anymore. And, and uh, a belief that a Messiah will come has been abandoned. Um, but the service of the word is kind of the ritual of the synagogue. Some of the ladies have studied covenants in uh, the, the Crossway survey course, and you'll remember the parts of a covenant. Uh, the preamble, the historical prologue, the rereading of the covenant, and we read scriptures, uh, that, that, just reminiscent of that, rereading of the covenant, blessings and curses. Uh, may I be cursed if I break this covenant? May I be blessed as I keep it? Law and Gospel, and uh, there's one more part, and I can't remember it. Um, so that, the service of the word in, in the ritual of the service of uh, drawing out of the Old Testament people. The ritual of the New Testament is in the celebration of the Eucharist. And none of it is vain repetition. You just may be sleepy and lazy that day. Well, that's okay. God still loves you, and so do we. Just don't make a habit of it. Um, and th that part is, is gospel where we are, we are uh, centering on God's giving us gifts. So what I want to say is, uh, in the Old Testament, in Leviticus, there's going to be two kinds of offerings on uh, two kinds of altars. One is uh, grain and uh, Grain offering will be for thanksgiving. It will not be for atonement. 
A peace offering is the result of being God's people. Uh, the NIVs that you might use call it a fellowship offering. That, that's a bad translation. It should be peace offering. In other words, that's what we're always talking about. These things need to be applied to life, and nothing's applied to life when you, you're talking all that jargon. Well, it, it is applied to life. You make peace. God has made peace with you, and you make peace with your brother. And uh, there's uh, the altar of, of uh, incense and sacrifice outside of the Holy of Holies. You'll be getting to that. And uh, that's where animals are offered for various forms of sacrifice. And you start to, to learn how the sacrificial system was then all fulfilled in Christ. And that's why we don't repeat the Old Testament rituals. Uh, the, there are also altars on which thanksgiving is offered and a grain offering to realize that's a, that's a stewardship kind of thing. I have the grain, but it's because it's a gift of God. So I offer back to him the gift that he gave me. And he lets me get to keep most of it. Did the Old Testament peoples fall into a rote kind of meaningless? Probably they did, just like we do. But the altar for atonement and forgiveness, the altar for thanksgiving, is ritualized in the divine service. And that's why... At least in this church, we say uh, worship is not entertainment. It's not, uh, it's not normed by the, the person on the street who walks in and says, I can't understand what's going on here. Well, that's, that's on purpose. You, you need to be drawn into it. You need to ask, what is going on here? I need to study this. And uh, uh, so catechesis is what's needed. But, but not a taking of the worship and just so that everybody feels good about it and that there's lots of rhythm and you can bounce your toe because you always feel better when you do that. Uh, but, but that's not sacramental, that's rhythm. So I, I, I thought we, that might be helpful to you as you continue to go through Leviticus and you get more and more specific. The ephod garment, the, uh, you slay the animal outside of the tent of meeting. Um, a lot of those things will start to take on a, a lot greater meaning if you understand what altars were for and the purpose and meaning of ritual. It's the repetition of those things that have the very deepest meaning, the most profound meaning. Last example, we'll have to close. It's 11.03. Question. It's, we do. And your life in the church has given you some words. You may add to them, but they have given you some words by which to get everything going. It is exactly true. 
Uh, there is a, a notion out nowadays that minimal is more godly. And I would challenge that. that is you don't preside over weddings. But minimal is not the key word at weddings. Maximum is the word at weddings. And they are highly ritualized. Highly ritualized. The unity candle. There never was such a thing. I think that was probably seen on TV. It's okay. Uh, you know, I, I, I'm not saying it's wrong, but... Uh, so we have our places where, where ritual is. And minimalization of the ritual of the church, that's not more godly. And that is a strain of thought that runs through many people's minds. He decided he didn't like it. Uh, ritual... Uh, I had a professor in the seminary who said, we could worship God with a tin whistle, but why should we? Why would we? Last thing, your kids have taught you ritual. Every night it's important. You read the same story over and over. I found they didn't often put my children to sleep, but they put me to sleep. <laughs> then you've got to sing Jesus songs. Then you pray, now I lay me down to sleep. Then the kids offer prayers that are on their minds. Then they laid down. And we always taught our kids uh, for the last thing in devotions, God be in my mind, God be in my heart, God be to the right of me, God be to the left of me, and ne'er from me depart. That was a ritual that was extremely important in their lives, and that ritual was catechesis. Let's close with the Our Father. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Thank you. Could you just grab that and put it kind of behind that?